This is Epicenter, episode 445, with guest Nick Johnson. Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution. I'm Friederike Ernst, and today I'm speaking with Nick Johnson, who is the founder of ENS, um, the Ethereum name service, uh, which is a service that lets you um, register um, a, an Ethereum top-level do domain. But before we talk with Nick about ENS, um, let me tell you about our sponsors this week. So our first sponsor is Paraswap. Paraswap is a multi-chain DEX aggregator. So this means that through Paraswap, you can easily access the liquidity of various different decentralized exchanges. The protocol automatically finds the cheapest liquidity for you, so you can trade knowing that you're getting the best price. Paraswap is also very gas-friendly, helping you to keep your transaction costs low. Paraswap recently added support for Avalanche, Polygon, BSE, and Phantom. And you can also use Paraswap directly from your Ledger and Ledger Live. In addition to that, they are also becoming a DAO. So if you have any PSP tokens, um, this is something that you might want to look into. The Paraswap DAO just voted for a gas refunds program. Um, and this allows Paraswap stakers to get up to a 100% gas refund um, on their trades on top of their auto-compounding yield. Visit Paraswap to learn more, paraswap.io slash epicenter. Our other sponsor today is Chorus One. So Chorus One secures blockchains and earns rewards without um, this needing to be energy intensive or complicated. And by staking your assets with Chorus One, you contribute to network security and earn rewards too. Chorus One has, has been a pioneer in this space since 2018 and secures billions of dollars in assets on over 25 decentralized networks, including Solana, Cosmos, and Ethereum. So if you're an institution um, or want to run your own branded node, you can also use um, Chorus One's white label service and their battle-proven infrastructure to participate in proof-of-stake networks in an easy and direct manner. Head over to Chorus.one and start your staking journey today. So, hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us again. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here and, and shocking to realize it's been so long. Yeah, so just before the show, um, we actually looked it up and it was just over five years ago. So five years, five years in normal time is a long time. Five years in crypto is like... Two eternities, yeah. Two eternities <laughs> ago. <laughs> so um, five years ago, you were still at the Ethereum Foundation, but you were already working on ENS and we actually already talked about ENS um, back then. Um, so I think, first of all, an update is in order, but maybe let's rehash what ENS is first. So ENS is kind of, it, it's an equivalent or to, to the domain name service um, that the internet has. Um, so maybe talk, let's talk about the domain name service um, first. So what, what, what does the domain name service do? Um, what are the responsibilities and duties? So the, the primary reason most people interact with DNS, the domain name service, is to resolve websites these days. Uh, but of course, it was developed before websites even existed. And the basic mean, the basic purpose of it was to name servers, name machines out in the world. Uh, and it was there to replace, you know, the original solution when the internet was very small indeed, which was just having Uh, everyone had a file listing all the computers on the internet and what their names were, which 
worked well enough when there were 20 of them and they were all universities and, and not so well as it grew. So the DNS was uh, the internet's first scaling solution for names. Uh, and its goal was, in many respects, very much the same as ENS's, which is to ensure that end users don't have to deal with uh, long and difficult to memorize numerical identifiers like IP addresses, or in the case of ENS, like uh, Ethereum addresses, uh, but can instead use a simple human-readable name to identify whatever resource it is that they're trying to look up. So so how is DNS administered? It's, uh, is it a non-profit? Uh, so ENS has a DAO, the creatively named ENS DAO, uh, and the DAO administers most of the sort of levers and switches that control ENS. So it controls how name registrations for .eth names happen. Uh, it controls the reverse registrar. It controls pricing and so on and so forth. Uh, there are There is one thing that it still doesn't control, which is what's known as the, uh, the ENS root. Uh, which gives the power to create new top-level domains and replace existing ones and so on. Uh, and for now, that is still under the control of the key holders, uh, who are a group of seven individuals from the ecosystem who are sort of entrusted with the route. Uh, in the, the short to medium term, that will also shift over to the control of the ENS DAO uh, once you know we're confident that everyone's confident that the DAO's been functioning well and, and is uh, able to take on that responsibility. Other than the DAO... Uh, there's the organization I had called True Names Limited, and we basically, we develop ENS. So we build the infrastructure, we write the smart contracts and so on uh, to, to keep things running and, and improve things. Cool. So um, the Web 2 equivalent, or Web 1 equivalent even, the DNS, um, how does that function? Um, is, it, uh, is it a similar setup? Uh, administratively, the the route is controlled or, or uh, managed by an organization called IANA, the Internet Association for uh, Names and Numbers. I may be uh, fudging that. Um, and the uh, majority of top-level domains are controlled by an organization called ICANN, uh, the Internet Corporation, Corporation for Names and Numbers. And they are the ones that, that control, uh, you know, that, that sort of hand out contracts to the owners of .com and .org and .domains and every other top-level domain you can think of with the exception of the country code ones. And then those are all managed individually but under ICANN's oversight. And then finally you have the country code domains like .nz and .us and, uh, you know, .uk and so forth, and they're all administered by their individual countries. So the DNS is actually fairly decentralized as well. It's fairly decentralized. Okay. Um, so I, I've always wondered, and I mean, you've got firsthand experience with this. How do you register a top level domain with um, the DNS? Because I mean, you guys have .eth, right? Yes. Uh, so it's a, it, it's not a simple process. Um, the, The, the internet started off with just three general purpose top-level domains, .com, .net, and .org, and then all the country code domains. And there wasn't really a process for registering new ones. Uh, some time ago, and I uh, I think it was around 2005, uh, ICANN decided they were going to auction off a whole lot of new top-level domains, uh, which was a controversial move at the time. Uh, and they 
basically people could apply to the auction and then if multiple people wanted the same top-level domain, they all bid against each other. And if not, then there was some minimum fee you had to pay in order to, to get it. Uh, and you had to sign up to their terms of service effectively and agree to administer it the way they think domains should be administered and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's what led to the current explosion of, of top-level domains that we see today. You know, they haven't actually run another one of those since then. So there's no generalized process for getting a new ICANN top-level domain. Uh, the whole, the route in general is, is controlled by IANA, but generally they've handed off responsibility to ICANN into the countries. So if you want to get a domain, your top-level domain, your options are basically ICANN or somehow convince IANA that your case is so exceptional that it should, you know, bypass all of these steps. Um, which, you know, may be the, the right solution if we want to try and get .eth into the route. But, you know, pr will we'll prove to be a long and complicated process if we do pursue that. Uh, and just to complicate things further, uh, the three-letter country codes, uh, such as USA and NZL and uh, I don't know what uh, Britain's is, um, are... Uh, also reserved. They're not actually given out to the countries, unlike the two-letter codes, but they're sort of held back and weren't available to, to bid on in ICANN's auction and so forth. Uh, and Ethiopia's three-letter country code is ETH. Uh, so, you know, the, the further complicating factor there is that Ethiopia has some sort of uh, implied claim to, or at least right of first refusal uh, to that. Um, and that's sort of a double-edged sword, I guess. On the one hand, you know, you might see that as a threat, but no country has expressed any interest in using their three-letter country code. On the other hand, it practically guarantees that nobody's going to try and register .eth with ICANN, uh, you know, or, or if they do, that it will be rejected. So we have a reasonable assurance that it's going to stay the way it is. So basically, because it's not um, registered with ICANN, so basically if I put uh, your... Uh, nick.eth into my browser, it will only resolve if I have certain plugins installed like MetaMask, right? Yeah, if you have MetaMask or, or a couple of others, or if you your browser directly supports it like Brave does, uh, but otherwise, no, it won't resolve. Okay, and um, there's uh, there's this trick um, to kind of put link behind the ETH, right? ETH.link. How, how does that work? Uh, so we originally developed that in association with IPFS, uh, and the, basically we registered ETH.link, just a standard second-level domain, um, and then we set up a service so that when you that all the subdomains map to ENS, basically. So if you enter uh, nick.eth.link, uh, then you're querying our service at ETH.link, and it looks up nick.eth. And then it uses that to resolve it and, and serves up the content from there. So it's a gateway that anyone can use. Uh, and since we launched it, Cloudflare has taken over responsibility for that. So they now host that. And a second service has sprung up from the community, eth.limo. Uh, and similarly, you can replay, you can add .limo at the end or replace .link with .limo and you get the same result. Uh, you get a, a distributed gateway. Oh, cool. I will try the limo, limo one. I didn't know that yet. Fantastic. They are often faster than Cloudflare, which is a pretty big tick in their book. Nice. Super nice. At the technical level, um, ENS, at the essence of it, it maintains a big smart contract that has registry of all the registered ENS domains, right? Yes. So what kind of content um, can ENS domains point to? 
So the the central registry that you mentioned only has two records for each domain. It has the owner and it has the resolver. And the resolver is another contract and its job is to to actually answer queries about that domain. Uh, And that means that the system is very flexible. So uh, at the moment, uh, our public resolver, which is sort of the default implementation that everyone can use, uh, supports a a large number of things, including uh, Ethereum addresses, addresses for other blockchains, uh, content on IPFS, Arweave, Swarm, etc., uh, profile fields such as an avatar, a background image, uh, email address, Twitter handle, etc., etc., um, and just arbitrary text records. So it's been used for a, a number of other things as a result. And uh, the nice thing is that it's permissionless, so anyone can add a new field to their own resolver and deploy it and use it without needing to upgrade the entire ENS system or, you know, come to agreement with everyone. Obviously, it's helpful if people standardize on their things because standards make it more widely usable, but there's no obligation to do so. So it's a very, uh, you know, it's decentralized in that sense, and it's a very uh, easily extended system. Ah, okay. Interesting. Um so what 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 are the use cases that people use it for most? I mean so basically if you look at the total number of registered domains what, what, what um yeah what what's kind of the distribution across these use cases? Do people actually make use of these? Yes, uh so I'd say that probably the the primary use case is of course resolving to ENS names to Ethereum addresses. Um followed by people using them as as personal profiles these days. So in addition to resolving to an address, it also has a profile picture and it has uh, information about their social media handles and so forth. And there's a lot of a lot of D websites now where you can log in and it will use that profile information. Um, secondary to that would be people using uh, addresses for other blockchains, uh, embedding those in their ENS profile and then distributed content primarily on IPFS. So there's a lot of D-Web sites that rely on, uh, you know, rely on a um, an Ethereum ENS name. Uh, for instance, uh, Gnosis hosts some of their sites via ETH.link. We do, we do. Fantastic. So this has been functional for a number of years, right? H- how, yes. many, how many uh, domains are currently registered? We just crossed the mark of a million active domains. Uh, if I load up the console now, it is showing me we're now at 1.1 million active names. So in terms of actually registered, you know, since if some of them have expired, it's it's more like 1.2, 1.3. Um, and uh, if you're if you're curious, in the last uh, seven days, people registered uh, 400,000 years worth of registrations. Uh, which always boggles my mind to think of like, you know, the equivalent of putting them into end to go to the moon sort of thing, you know. <laughs> cool. So um, the, the the main um, challenge for ENS today, as I see it, currently is the level of fees. So, I mean, basically, if I think back, um, back in the day, regi- registering an ENS domain, basically there's a fee. Um, so basically it's, it's nominal. So it's nominal. So basically for, for, um, uh, five or more letters, it's something like $5 a year or something. It's, it's, it's pretty low. Um, it goes up for four and three letter, uh, domains. But I mean, so basically the, the especially the $5, um, they, uh, pale in contrast, um, to the Ethereum gas fees. And of course, this was not always the case, right? So how how do you guys think about um, existing on an, an incredibly expensive um, Ethereum mainnet at the moment? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, silver lining and everything, the, the past week or so has made it a lot cheaper. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of a long-term solution, um, it, it is definitely an issue and it is, as you observe, an awful lot more expensive than it used to be. Uh, the uh, the short-term, like the easy solution is uh, just register for more years. Like, you know, don't renew it every year because you'll say it costs no more in gas to register for 10 as it does for one. But obviously that is only you know, a mitigation, not a solution. Um, the real solution we're working on is uh, enabling ENS records to be stored off-chain but still verified uh, by the, the main ENS infrastructure. Uh, and so that's uh, something called EAP3668 or CCIP read. Uh, and the way it works is effectively you, you go to resolve the name and the resolver tells you, oh, in order to answer that question, I need you to fetch some data for me. And it asks you to go off and fetch it from a gateway to some other chain. So that can be an L2 like Optimism. It could be another L1 like Polygon. It could even be a permission database with an, an HTTP API, um, which then returns the information needed to resolve the name along with whatever's needed to prove the accuracy of that. So if you're hosting your the data for your name on an L2 like Optimism, it can return a complete state proof to prove that the value is, is correct. And then the original resolver gets that data back and can verify it's correct and return the result to you. And all of this happens in a call, not a transaction. So the end result is uh, once you, you have a one-time fee to set it up on a name, but then after that, you could manage your records elsewhere without any L1 gas fees at all. Uh, and you can do all of this for subdomains too. So you can buy a domain, you can set it up uh, using this, and then you can issue subdomains and set their records all without any L1 gas fees uh, either. Cool. So does the register, so the person who registers, um, do they have to decide um, which infrastructure they want to use to register? So can I decide whether I want to do this in Optimism or Polygon, or is that something you guys um, kind of set for everyone? So for now, the registration will still take place on mainnet. Um, but when you do so, you can, you'll can you be able to select a gateway to use uh, so that all further management takes place on uh, the external system of your choice, basically. Um, in the longer term, we may be able to move the registration itself onto an L2. Um, but unlike this solution, we would have to pick just one L2 or, or off-chain system as the solution. Uh, and given how nascent this, this whole environment is, we're very hesitant to sort of pick one and, and anoint it as the ENS chain, you know. Um, and we also anticipate that uh, a lot of end users will uh, not register their own second-level ETH names. They will use subdomains uh, from wallets or from other providers or people who have set them up for, for free or cheap subdomains and so forth, uh, in which case they never need to pay an L1 gas fee at all. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you guys decide which layer tools and other networks to support in this? Well, so the nice thing is that like uh, the resolver system itself, this is permissionless. Anyone can write a gateway. Uh, obviously, not everyone has the skills or the time to write a gateway. So we've already released the initial support for this with uh, libraries and, and server-side code and so on for doing this yourself. But our next step is to start to build this out uh, for you know certain L2s initially. Uh, and we're doing that in conjunction with Chainlink. And the, the initial target is Optimism, uh, followed probably by Arbitrum. Uh, and then we'll start looking at like non-EVM L2s uh, such as ZK Sync and also non-L2s such as Polygon potentially. Uh, things get a little more complicated when you move away from uh, you know L2s that are 
EVM-based and and trustless. I mean, I, I understand that that's a, technically a lot more challenging, but so basically, um, are there plans to kind of expand out um, into the wider um, blockchain ecosystem? So for instance, um, like Cosmos or Polkadot, I mean, how do they feel about having an ETH domain? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I'd point out that we also have DNS integration, so they're welcome to use any of the other uh, top-level domains if they don't like .eth. Um, and, and when the next auction comes around, they could always bid for .bitcoin or .solana uh, .solana or, or whatnot. Um, I think, uh, you know, we're going to keep working on new sort of officially supported gateways with Chainlink for the foreseeable future, you know, as long as there's demand. Um, but... I don't want to downplay how, you know, how flexible the system is and that this doesn't all have to come from us. You know, people can build their own gateways, whether they're trusted or trustless. Uh, and I sort of expect that to see a, to see that happen a lot with wallets and so forth, where they host their users' uh, name records and serve them up for their own infrastructure so they can offer uh, entirely free subdomains and, and records, uh, which I think is, is really cool that you could just, you could sign up for a trustless, uh, wallet on your phone, you know, you can hold the keys yourself and you can instantly, without having to send any transactions or, or get any crypto to start, you can have an ENS name that allows people to, to identify your new wallet, uh, which is not something that's really been doable until now because we've had a bit of a chicken and egg problem there. Are there any wallets that currently already support this? Uh, no, but we're working with a couple of major ones to integrate it soon. We only launched the the L two support, uh, you know, earlier this year, uh, so there it's still work in progress. But hopefully, we'll have some some things to announce soon. The flip side of the matter is that uh, everything is open, right? So basically, so I, I mean, your your top level domain is Nick dot ETH. My 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 mine is uh, fans dot ETH, and I mean, so basically, um, everything you do on that address um, is instantly attributable to you right do you do you guys have thoughts on um kind of integrating some zero knowledge services where basically i can show um to certain people that i own some assets but not to the world i i sort of view it as a, a wider problem for the ecosystem and the chain rather than ens specific i think rather than exacerbating it ENS amplifies like how obvious it is mm. uh, you know when you look at your address on Etherscan without a name associated you have this false sense of security that it looks obscure and how would anyone know it's mine um, but it is depressingly easy to link names to people people's identities uh, so it certainly it just makes it a lot more obvious uh, we we definitely support and encourage systems that uh, use ENS to provide better uh, you know, anonymity and so forth. So, for instance, uh, Umbra uh, is a, uh, it's not a mixer, it's more a, a way to send anonymously. Uh, so you can send to an address without, uh, to, to a, you can send funds in a way that the tar recipient can claim them, but without sending it directly to their address so that nobody can see exactly who it was sent to. Um, and they have built their system around DNS names as the the way you address people's uh, wallets and so forth. So that allows that sort of financial privacy that I think is very important. And yeah, I guess I, I like to see more uh, systems like that spring up and, and with the NS support, and we we really want to support that and, and help them out. Uh, it's definitely more of a challenge with non-fungible tokens like names, because if you could imagine a ENS name mixer, it 
uh, it wouldn't really work. You know, you put your name in and a while later you pull it out somewhere else and it doesn't take a genius to realise that those two, that it's probably the same person, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is uh, that is totally true. Um, so the the other uh, big topic for ENS currently is the governance process. So, right, so basically, so you guys did a super well-designed ENS token airdrop. Thank you. Tell us about the token airdrop first. How did you go about it? Sure. So we, uh, you know, we, we wanted to give governance power to uh, the people who had had the biggest impact on ENS. And so part of that was was simply identifying projects and people, you know, manually, but most of it was the community as a whole. And we could have done something like, you know, X tokens per year registered per domain um, or something like that. But I think there's a much like the the fact that somebody has registered uh, 200 domains for for a year each or or for five years each or whatever doesn't make them 200 more times more useful a participant than somebody who's registered one or two. And so what we wanted to do was try and recognize people who uh, had been part of the, the ecosystem and the community for a long time. So like they, they joined us early and they've stuck with us. Uh, or people who have a long-term commitment to the ecosystem, who who anticipate sticking around for a long time, and and give those people the governance power to have a say in the future of it. Uh, and so the way we did it was uh, we sort of split the airdrop in half, and we gave out half the tokens on the basis of how long you've owned a name for. Um, so you know if you've owned it from day one, you got the maximum amount. If you've owned it for two years, you got half the maximum amount, and so on. And then the other half we gave out in proportion to uh, how far in the future your longest name is registered for. Um, and that was capped out at eight years because uh, there's, there's one person who's registered the the name their name until the year forty seven seventy two or something. Um, and if we'd done <laughs> it linearly, he would have just gotten all the tokens. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, we we felt that those two factors reflected both you know past commitment and future commitment. And then in addition to that, uh, you can set a primary name for your ENS. Uh, for your Ethereum address, which which is, you know, this is the name that represents this address. Uh, and we doubled all of those amounts if you'd done that because we believed that represented a strong commitment to the ecosystem as well. So when people actually claim their airdrop, um, you, 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 you made an interesting design decision. So you actually made people choose a delegate, a delegate in the process of claiming. So I think in principle, you could bypass it if you had interacted with the smart contracts directly. But, um, basically in the interface, it basically forced you to delegate your tokens to someone who had previously signed up for the job. Why, why did you go about it that way? I think like the purpose of the ENS token is to be a governance token, is to like meaningfully vote on the future of ENS and decide what technical improvements we should make, what uh, you know, how the funds should be used to advance the ecosystem, uh, and for that, participation is really crucial. And we know from looking at other projects that delegation is is necessary because it's simply not practical for most users to keep up to date on most things. You know, the same reason we have representative democracy instead of direct democracy. Nobody can be an expert on everything. You just don't have the time. Um, so we believed it was really important to, to have delegates. Uh, and we also believed that it was really important that everybody delegate as part of claiming because the whole point is to be representative and, and you're only doing that if you're actually like making sure your tokens take part in this process. 
uh, you could actually delegate to yourself. Uh, and there was a button to do that in the UI, but we made the conscious choice to sort of de-emphasize that, to encourage people to think of somebody else who represents them first, because, you know, we believe most people that self-delegate without a real commitment will sort of wander off effectively. Um, that wasn't the only unusual thing we did. We also, uh, we had a constitution. Uh, we still have a constitution, which represents sort of core principles driving ENS and the ENS DAO. Uh, and if you claimed during the first week it presented all four clauses to you and asked you to vote yay or nay on each of them, and the constitution was only passed if each one was voted yes for a, by a supermajority, uh, and after the first week you were still shown the clauses, but the, the voting was over, but you were at least you know inducted into what it meant for, for ENS to be a public good. How did delegates become delegates, and how do you think most of the people actually chose their delegate? So there was a real temptation to to do a big bang launch of like, you know, you didn't know this was coming, but now the airdrop is today. Um, but in the end, we decided it made a lot more sense to talk about it before we did it, because amongst other things, that gave us an opportunity to, to put out a call for delegates uh, and to give people an opportunity to step forward. Uh, so we did that. We announced the airdrop. We, we asked for people to come forward as delegates on our forum, uh, and each person Basically, to be considered as a delegate, you had to write a short profile of yourself, you know, why you wanted to be a delegate, how you believed you'd, you'd govern, uh, you know, why people should delegate to you. Uh, and then you link to that profile from your ENS name using a text record because, you know, eat your own dog food, um, along with a profile picture and a primary name. Um, and then when it came to the claim app, we dynamically pulled in the list of delegates from uh, a subgraph and from the chain directly uh, to show everybody's uh, ENS name, their profile picture, and a link to their position statement, basically. We got far more delegates than we expected. Uh, we got over 500 uh, submissions that actually followed through on the entire process and far more who just you know started with the profile and never completed it. Um, so, you know, initially we were thinking of a UI around like 50, you know, and, and like, well, that's a real challenge. How do we reasonably present as many as 50 candidates to people so that they can make an informed decision? And suddenly it was 10 times that. Um, so we knew realistically that a lot of people wouldn't like they're not going to read everybody's position statement. They may not even read many or any. Um, so there were a few things we tried to do to combat that. One is uh, we gave people delegate links. You could give somebody a link that would select you as the default choice uh, if they claimed through you. Uh, and so then delegates could sort of go out and campaign for their own delegation. Um, and it would it would clearly state to you, you know, this is the delegate that's been, you know, picked by by the link, but you could override it. The second thing we did was we tried to get a little bit clever with how we sorted the delegates. So we didn't want to just sort things randomly because you might get a lot of people you've never heard of and, and just, you know, pick somebody just to get through that step. Uh, we didn't want to sort it top down by most votes because then you end up with a very strong feedback loop of this person has the most votes, therefore at the top, therefore they get the most votes. So we tried to sort of um, thumb on the scales a little bit in that we uh, we shuffled it semi-randomly, where the more votes you had, the more likely you were to come up to the top. But if you had more than a certain number of votes, uh, then you would actually get downweighted. 
So the idea was that we wanted, you know, we decided like it would be healthy if we had sort of 20-ish really active delegates. So if you had more than one twentieth of the votes, you actually started getting bumped down the list and less likely to show up. Um, you know, and, and the idea was we wanted delegates who could meaningfully represent a group of people, but not be just an overwhelming voice who could overrule everyone else. And Nothing worked perfectly, but I think this worked reasonably well uh, at, at sort of distributing the voting power uh, and still giving people, uh, you know, the executive choice to decide what they wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I saw it and uh, I didn't read all the 500 statements, but I just scrolled down <laughs> to the first person where I, saw, where I thought, uh, yeah, this guy uh, here probably make decisions similar to the decisions I would make if I were asked personally. So I'll delegate to him sort of thing. Um, so what's in it for the delegates? Not, not a lot, to be honest. Um, you know, they, they, I think people may have, some of those 500 people may have put themselves forward because they sort of thought they would be richly rewarded for their participation. <laughs> But, uh, you know, mostly where it's, it's a more or less volunteer position. Uh, you know, we, we have stewards inside the DAO who are also appointed by the delegates and they get compensation for the work they do. For the most part, delegates are, are acting voluntarily out of a desire to, to improve the ecosystem. And I, personally am supportive of, of compensating them for their time because I think it's unreasonable to expect people to put a lot of effort into uh, knowing all the ins and outs of something uh, in their spare time. If nothing else, it privileges people who have that time to spare and, and can afford to do so. Um, but it's kind of problematic. Like you don't, it's very, very easy to set up a perverse incentive here where You know, you get professional delegates whose job it is to just, you know, know things, uh, but but not actually contribute to the governance process, you know, or that you have, you know, bot delegates who just vote on everything in order to get rewarded. You know, it's it's a tricky situation, but I would like to, that's something I hope the DAO evolves on as time goes by, because I think it's necessary for sustainability. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a delegate and I kind of, I made this commitment to do it, but then kind of my life circumstances change, so I can no longer afford to afford the time or um, it just doesn't make sense for me. How, how, how do I step down and what happens to the people who delegated to me? This is a, this is kind of a big problem with the compound based governance uh, model that we adopted in that it doesn't have a, good, a great way to do that. Uh, if you thought ahead and your governance Account, you know, your your delegate account was a multi-sig or something, you could hand the multi-sig off to your successor. Um, but if it's an EOA, if it's an external account, uh, there's no way to like re-delegate en masse uh, to someone else. You simply have to publicize to your delegates that you're no longer acting actively um, and then wait for them to reassign. But of course, we have the whole inactivity issue. Um, and so a lot of those people may not do that. And so you may be Uh, you know, you, you could step down and you could say, uh, I'm just going to vote how X votes as time goes on, but then you've still got at least the commitment to be there and and present for those votes. Uh, so that is definitely something that, you know, more work is needed on in the future. We need better uh, governance systems that can handle the sort of succession problem. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, this is, yeah, totally true. It's, uh, yeah. It's one of the, so governance is still so early, right? Very much so, yeah. So tell us about the kinds of decisions that the delegates have made so far. Sure. Uh, so we, uh, the, the very first decision, uh, besides ratifying the constitution, 
uh, was to formally petition the multi-sig, uh, which you know previously controlled all of the uh, all of the funds and all of the important levers, to hand them over to the DAO. Uh, so that was a purely social vote. There was no like execution on chain by the DAO, but it was a you know basically a formal letter saying, "Hey, hand it over. It's time to decentralize." Uh, and that, of course, passed with almost unanimous consent. Um, since then, uh, I'm, I'm glancing through the list myself to remind me. We the the second uh, proposal was uh, there were a few people who got smaller airdrops than they should have because of basically an error uh, on my part in calculating whether they had a primary name set or not, uh, and the community was motivated to to give them what they missed out on. Uh, which I thought was was actually a really good litmus test of of how the community is going to act around this sort of thing, because the selfish impulse might have been to keep it for the DAO. Then there was uh, creating working groups and sort of getting the whole DAO started, um, and that's you know been very successful so far. We now have a system for sort of getting work done individually beyond like polling everybody in the entire DAO for every decision, which just isn't practical. Um, and uh, there has been a bunch of stuff around. Um, the price premium. Uh, these, this is sort of the first on-chain governance activities that the uh, the DAO has had to do. Um, when a name expires, uh, it goes to a Dutch auction, uh, so it starts at a high price and, and diminishes over was originally twenty eight days. Basically, to ensure one person can't snap up the name the moment it becomes available. Originally, that was set at like the ninety fifth percentile of all the short name auction values, which was $2,000, which seemed like lots at the time. Um, but around the time of the DAO launch, it became really apparent that this was nowhere near enough. Uh, so we you know, we were seeing gas auctions going on. We were seeing MEV and stuff to snap up names as soon as they became available. So the first thing the DAO voted to do was to replace that with a new version that started at $100,000, which seemed more than enough. Um, that had two problems. One is occasionally $100,000, believe it or not, isn't enough, and people are willing to pay more than that for a name that just expired. Uh, the second is that even over 28 days, if you're going from 100000 to zero, the last day or so covers like the entire $2,000 range in a bit, um, which means that if you just want, if you're willing to pay 100 bucks for the name, you have like a 30-minute window in which you have to be at your computer in order to do this. Um, so one of the most recent things the DAO did was to uh, agree uh, to replace it with a new version that's exponential. So now it starts at the completely absurd price of $100 million, um, not in the expectation that anyone values a name at that, but the expectation that that's too much. You know, we have to start at a price that's higher than anyone will pay. And then it halves every day for three weeks, um, by which point it gets down to six bucks or something. And that's so far been really successful. Um, and then the most recent thing the uh, DAO voted was to end the airdrops uh, because the initial planned period for the airdrop was six months and that's now, we've just passed that uh, mark. Super interesting. Um, so the DAO also has um, some treasury, right, from the from the fees uh, from the registrations. So how does it, how does it spend that money? Um, I mean, so far, not a lot. Um, so, you know, we, we recently, with the, the recent popularity of, of numbered names and, and other sort of ENS social clubs, the income has been really substantial. Um, there's sort of two main ways it's it's intended to spend it, uh, well, three, I guess. One is funding the, the ENS ecosystem directly. 
Um, and so that includes, you know, funding projects directly associated with ENS, such as True Names, the company I run that, that does ENS development, um, and other efforts such as sign in with Ethereum through Spruce um, and so on and so forth. And, you know, just sort of wider ecosystem projects. Um, and the other is, uh, so it is too, um, the other is public goods more generally. So, you know, things outside uh, ENS, but still within Ethereum or even sort of, you know, wider space public goods. Um, and so, so far, the, the DAO has funded the sign of the Ethereum server to the tune of 250k. Uh, it's requested budgets for the individual working groups, which they've used to do things like uh, pay for stewards time and put through proposals for, for other work to do. Um uh, and it's funded a couple of bug bounties for some some you know small to moderate bugs that were found in ENS. Um, it hasn't really processed any really large scale grants yet, but I kind of expect that to change uh, in the near future, especially given uh, the the returned funds, you know, the unclaimed airdrop funds that were returned to the DAO. I think it's really there's a lot of legitimacy there to spend some of that on on helping ENS community efforts and, and even you know wider public goods. So ENS. It's very much, it posits itself as a public goods project, right? So basically it's not for profit. But if you look at ENS tokens, I mean, you can buy them for money, right? I mean, so basically it's, I mean, it's a governance token. Um, but I mean, if you look at the past couple of years in this ecosystem, I mean, there, there have been a lot of governance tokens and somehow they give you, um, an implied ownership of the project and often there's an expectation of uh, profit. So kind of how do you reconcile the implied valuation of um, DNS DAO at uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars um, with, you know, it's very much, it's publicly stated nonprofit um, nature? Um, I mean, I guess we've been, you know, we were always aware that people would want to trade them, you know, no matter what you do, um, you know, somebody is going to want to swap it for something else. Um, but our emphasis has always been that these are governance tokens. And so we've been really clear about a few things. We, uh, you know, it is intended to be a public good. Uh, and it's actually even stated in the NES's constitution that it's not legitimate to, to pay out profits to, to token holders. You know, that is explicitly not the intention of the funds. It's to be used for improving the ecosystem and so forth. Um, so, you know, We've done our best to disabuse anyone of the notion that owning tokens is a route to dividends or profits or, or whatnot. That's just not what it's for. And, you know, in addition to that, like True Names and, and the DAO haven't taken part in any, you know, offering liquidity or listing on exchanges or everything, anything like that. All of that's been uh, purely organic. Um, but it is, you know, it is inevitable people will want to swap it and even purely as a governance token, it's clear that it should have some value because, uh, you know, if you are a project seeking a grant from the DAO, uh, then you have a financial interest in getting that grant and therefore, you know, the tokens would have some value to you. And it's healthy for the DAO if it's not trivial for somebody to buy enough tokens to grant themselves all the funds inside the DAO. Um, but financial motivations for, for the tokens to have value are very much, you know, bottom of the list. And, I think I, I've also really tried to establish a norm that, you know, the DAO has a lot of tokens itself. In fact, it has f over 50% of the, the token supply. And personally, I've really tried to set a norm that those aren't used as monetary payment, but they're used as recognition for work improving ENS. So, uh, you know, if somebody like uh, sign in with Ethereum runs a server, then their costs and so forth ought to be paid for in 
in uh, ether or or USD, um, and further they can be given some some tokens as you know a sign of sort of like the responsibility they've taken on and the fact that they should then have a voice in the future of the DAO. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So basically, I think this is it's kind of an area that we as an ecosystem kind of have to ne- learn to navigate better. I mean, obviously, direct dem- dem- democracy doesn't really work because there's no way to be to be to be uh, knowledgeable about anything that kind of need about everything that needs to be decided. Um, but on the other hand, how professional do you want your politicians to become? Right. So basically, how, how do, do you want them to kind of go out and campaign and make campaign promises and say, if this happens, I, I promise to give you guys whatever. So basically, um where, how do you see the future of that? I mean, so basically in, in five years, how do you think, um, I mean, fr- from aside, I mean, the technical implications and everything aside, how do you see this working? I, I guess I would rather a future where we have protocol politicians who go out and campaign for votes than one where uh, the powerful people who want something done simply go out and buy those votes. Uh, and use them to enact their will, um, but I hope that we can. I hope that we can build. Like I think it comes as much down to social norms as it does to technical measures, and that's why the constitu- Why I wanted a constitution as a founding document, and not just some sort of unwritten rules. I hope that we can use that foundation to establish a sort of nor- governance norms, uh, where those where the sort of more mercenary end of things or the more political end of things is rejected in favor of sort of technical collaboration and and sort of uh you know generally all pushing in the same direction and i know that sounds kind of techno utopian um but i i do believe that we can build stable sort of if not democratic at least accountable systems uh that do have that sort of longevity of vision um, and the way you do it is, you know, starting on the right route and explicitly stating your goals in a way that anyone who comes along later understands that to be so, um, so that you don't drift off course effectively. Okay, so basically culture over technology. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, for, I mean, basically, if you look at the Ethereum ecosystem over the last couple of years, um, there's been a very market shift in kind of um, the mind space um, of the ecosystem, Right. Um, what what do you think are the major challenges facing us right now? Uh, I think, like, increasingly, I think backlash from people outside crypto is, is a bigger and bigger issue. And it's one that I sort of, you know, had, had worried about a bit even back when I joined, but never anticipated it would reach the sort of volume that it has today. And it's frustrating because there are legitimate issues with, the wider crypto ecosystem, uh, you know, both around uh, legitimate concerns around sustainability because of proof of work currencies, and also legitimate concerns around the sort of scams and, and schemes that an, a completely unregulated ecosystem attracts. Um, but those get, uh, you know, that seed of reasonableness gets sort of exploited to, for, for hyperbole. And it's kind of depressing to see people I otherwise like and respect throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying the whole thing is rotten to its core and awful and so on because they don't like this particular problem du jour, you know. I think 
reaching out to those people and convincing them that we are trying to build something valuable here, something useful to people, something that isn't just a get-rich-quick scheme or you know, a platform for scammers or, or whatnot is going to be one of the biggest challenges in making sure that crypto has real longevity. Um, and, and that also includes things like Ethereum transitioning to proof-of-stake to demonstrate that, yes, it is actually possible to move to a secure system that doesn't rely on proof of work and therefore has, you know, doesn't have significant environmental sustainability issues. Yeah, I, I think the, the the switch to the proof of stake, I mean, this is in terms of narrative, it's uh, so important. And in terms of technology, it's also so important. But I think basic, basically uh, the narrative to me currently seems even more important. Um, there's a very distinct culture of money and mercenary dom that kind of has invaded um the ecosystem somewhat so basically five years ago when you were when you were last on i mean this was uh during the first ico craze so i'm i mean i'm not going to say that money wasn't uh wasn't an issue back then but at least in my perception um the, the nature of people who come in and the reasons they come in for has changed substantially um and it's not always the best people do you think it's a threat i think it's a significant issue yeah and i think it's self-reinforcing in the sense that as long as crypto's image is as the way it is it will attract more people who see that as attractive and then that will make it more true you know over time uh and and you know like i was talking about with with how I want ENS to proceed forward, the same sort of inertia applies here, that it gets more and more difficult to change your course. And, you know, I, I have this sort of axiom myself that any anything you don't come to agreement on ahead of time, uh, you know, anything you don't set down as a principle, uh, if you try, you, it will be just effectively impossible to set later because you will find people on every side of the argument if you try and, and do it because you'll attract to your community people who have every possible view on it. And that can make the sort of shift extremely difficult. Like it's the reason that I think transitioning to proof of stake is actually going to be relatively uncontentious because it was set right from day one that this would be the thing that would happen. So most people who have joined the community have joined that accepting this. But, you know, it's much more difficult to set that sort of norm and it hasn't been set around things like, uh, you know, sort of self-serving uh, attitudes to, to money and to the, the ecosystem and, and, you know, sort of, desire to get rich quick and, and ignore the community and not build something useful for everyone. And to be honest, yeah, I do see it as a problem. I don't see an easy solution to it, except, you know, continuing to make ourselves heard, which feels futile at times. Yeah, no, I mean, ENS is definitely, um, uh, I mean, I think it can be said uncontentiously that it's a force for good and basically that it it i mean you guys are seen as unserving serving so i think you're in a good position to kind of set this moral compass when you think about when you zoom out and think about ethereum and the future of ethereum with respect to um other blockchain ecosystems so basically uh, ecosystems that have been there a long time, so basically Cosmos and Polkadot and so on, and then basically the self-proclaimed Ethereum challenges, so Solana, Avalanche, Phantom, and so on. H how do you see those working together? I mean, I guess, you know, so, some degree of, of 
you know, collaboration is, is inevitable and useful and we have, you know, uh, message bridges and we have token bridges and so forth that facilitate all of that. I do kind of think that if Ethereum delivers on its goal to, uh, you know, to support uh, scalability via layer twos and so forth, that there is less appetite and interest for competing L1s. And I think competing L1s are aware of that too. And I'm not an Ethereum maximalist in that I think Ethereum has a lot to learn from uh, innovations on other chains. Um, And I also think that there's nothing that means that Ethereum has to be the winner, um, except that uh, it's been around for a long time. It's very mature and it has people working on it who are adaptable to change. And in fact, the ecosystem itself is adaptable to change. Um, It could be some other chain, but I do think that on in the long run, one chain will come to dominate as sort of the L1 because you have those strong network factors around both just, you know, interchangeability, but also around security. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's my, my overall perspective. Um, I don't, I think a lot of the chains are trying to distinguish themselves on things that, uh, you know, effectively, they're not actually making an innovation. They're just picking a different point on the trade-off curve between centralization and scalability, you know, um, or decentralization and scalability. You know, they're saying we can run 10 times as fast, but our nodes require 10 times as many resources. You haven't actually scaled it. You've just picked a different spot. And I'm not saying Ethereum necessarily has picked the perfect spot, but I think if it's all the way over on that end where you need a whole data center to run a node, uh, that's not a future I'd want to see for for the cryptocurrencies and, and blockchains because I don't feel it's meaningfully improved over just running closed systems, to be honest. Kind of focusing back on, on ENS, so we've already talked about your layer two um, strategies and, um, uh, and kind of making it uh, cheaper for people to interact uh, with ENS domains again. Um, what else is on the roadmap for you guys? Uh, so we've got a big suite of uh, contract updates that are uh, due out very soon now, which will add new capabilities. Uh, so the primary one is called the name wrapper, and the idea is it will add new functionality to every name. Um, it'll uh, you know mean that names at all levels will become NFTs, not just .eth second level names. Uh, it also makes it easier for people to issue subdomains trustlessly. So I could give you you know nick dot the you know the wallet .eth uh, or, or you know uh, whatever name you would like, and you could be sure that uh, nobody, you know, that I couldn't take it back or reassign it or whatnot. And that makes it a lot more practical for people to to use subdomains as a as a, a real life tool. Um, it also, uh, you know, we're we're rolling in a suite of other upgrades uh, to the uh, the registrar and uh, to the uh, reverse registrar and various other bits of functionality uh, that that allow um, doing a lot more in one transaction, which also reduces the gas fees there. So you'll be able to register a name, you'll be able to set it up, and you'll be able to set your primary name all in just a single transaction, which improves the UX and also reduces the gas fees there. Um, and then the other thing, big thing we're working on is a complete redesign of the manager, uh, the you know our main app. And you can see a preview of that at, at preview.ens.domains. Um, we're working on you know really soon getting out uh, a feature parity version that will replace the current version, um, but with much, much better UX than the current one. And then from there, we, you know, we obviously want to add a lot more functionality that we previously haven't had. 
And then I guess finally, we've got you know integrations for this L2 support coming from some major wallet providers. Nice. It sounds like you have quite a roadmap there. Um, yes. do, do, do you guys um, plan on building um, a notification service that lets you know that your name is about to expire? Because I, I accidentally let epicenter.eth lapse and I had to buy it back. It was really expensive. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's not great. Uh, yeah, it's it's been an ongoing problem. Um, and we've got, you know, in, in the app now, you can click to set a calendar reminder, which has probably been the most reliable one so far because it relies on services people already use. Uh, and you can set to, you can click to set an email reminder via a third party service. Um, the problem with that is, you know, your domain expires in 10 years. How sure are we that that service will still be around in 10 years? Um, it's an area where like we, we definitely want to improve, but we kind of view building our own notification service as like a last resort because it's something that should be a useful tool for much more than just us. And I'd love to see it built as a reliable decentralized service rather than us having to build it ourselves, but we will if we have to. Okay. So basically if, if someone were to go to the ENS uh, DAO and say, look, I need a grant to build this, uh, mm -hmm. this is... 100%. Please do. <laughs> so where do people go to find out more about ENS or maybe even participate in governance? Yeah. So uh, ENS.domains is, is the best place for just learning about ENS in general. Uh, and if you add slash governance to the end, it will give you a landing page that will take you to, uh, you know, learning about governance, uh, learning how to delegate and claim your tokens uh, and, and participating in governance by joining our, our Discord chat and also our, our forum. Perfect. Thank you, Nick. As always, it's been a pleasure to have you on and I hope we have you back on in fewer than five years. <laughs> Me too. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.